Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Have a Little Insight, the podcast where we share people's personal stories, lived experience, and expertise in the hopes of creating a kinder, more compassionate, and understanding world. I'm your host, Jenny. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to switch it up a little bit this week. I've been noticing within myself and a lot of people around me that there's been a lot of unrest and frustration and anxiety going on as a result of partly due to everybody's favorite word lately, COVID-19 and living in a global pandemic. So I took some time over the last couple of weeks to really reflect on what has been stressing me out and strategies and tactics that have helped me recently and in the past. So I'm going to share that with you today and hopefully it will help a few of you out there. And just a reminder before we get started, if you do find this episode really appeals to you and you find it interesting, please share it with a friend, your mom, a coworker, in the hopes of helping us reach more and more people. We are available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in and let's get started. All right. So as I mentioned in the intro, folks, the last few weeks have been challenging for me. And I think like a lot of people out there, there have been a lot of ups and downs as fallout from a word I'm sure we're sick of all hearing, the pandemic and COVID-19. There has been constant uncertainty and change. And personally, for me, it's been creating a lot of stress. So I spent some time reflecting on my process and what the last year has been like. And when this started a year ago, I'm sure, like a lot of you, I was more cautious than I definitely am now. At that time, I remember wiping and disinfecting my groceries when I brought them home. I was social distancing from my partner. I was not seeing any of my friends. And I felt a great deal of responsibility to be a good citizen, try to prevent spreading the virus, and I was especially cautious because I live with my mom. Since that time, I've gone through so many different phases and emotions. I've been angry. I've gone over conspiracy theories in my mind. I've been concerned. I've accepted the situation like it is what it is. Be grateful for the time, you know? Otherwise, you might be working and running around like crazy. I felt depressed. I felt thankful. And this is something I just want to pause and talk about for a moment. Being thankful. Feeling thankful during a global pandemic. This is a period where millions of people globally are getting sick. And I've been experiencing legit moments of gratitude. And it feels almost selfish. So here's the deal. None of my loved ones have been sick, thank God, or needed serious medical attention. I'm thankful I've been able to slow down. I was running on fumes before this started, working a full-time job, going to school, in a relationship, trying to maintain a social life, and starting this podcast. So the pandemic really allowed me to slow down. Now I have coffee every morning with my mom, and I'm actually really grateful that despite multiple belts of social distancing, closed provincial borders, that My romantic relationship is thriving. And thank God for Zoom and Skype, folks. Like video calls and game nights have been saving my life. And I'm super, super, super lucky that I live really close to nature because it's essential for me, I've learned over the last year, to decompress and regroup. Now, this list could go on and on. And it's not to say that 
being thankful alleviates the stress of life or the current bombardment of changes or trying to understand why the government regulations don't always make sense. But taking a minute to look at what's going right in your life, regardless of all the stress, certainly helps. So as I mentioned before, every morning now I have coffee with my mom. And I've been having lately more bad days, as I mentioned, but on bad days, my mom often tells me, Jenny, what you focus on grows. And yeah, I'm sure we've all heard this before. What we resist persists. And although, like many of you, I sometimes roll my eyes at this, especially on harder days, my mom is right. And here's how I know why. During the last year, I found myself engaged in behaviors that I have never done before. I've never been a person to watch the news, and this year I've been following it like crazy. I've never been one to be sucked into debates on social media with people I don't know, and this year, that's exactly what's been happening. I find myself on Facebook calling people out on things for posting articles that aren't sourced well, and when I take a minute and I sit back and I look at myself, I have to ask myself, is this really serving me? And this pandemic, like a lot of you out there, I'm sure, you feel pushed to your edge on multiple occasions, and then you feel okay, and then you feel stressed again, but maybe that's okay. So recently, I just finished reading a book called This One Wild and Precious Life, written by Sarah Wilson. If you follow us on Instagram, we're at Helly Podcast, you'll see a picture of the book there. I highly recommend reading it. In this book, Sarah outlines how being pushed to our edge breeds our resiliency. And if I look back on the last year, not just me, but I think as a society in general, we have been taken to our edge on multiple occasions and probably in a way that we haven't faced in a very long time, at least in Western culture. And when I take time and I think again, I think about something my best friend said to me just last week, I think it was. And she said, you know, things are hard. You have bad days, you have good days, but if we take time to reflect, like, is it really that bad? Because there is always war happening somewhere. We're just not used to that kind of conflict in our world. And I want to touch on this for just a minute because I think it's really important and it's backed by science. And I found it recently in a book I was reading called We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Froer. And what Jonathan talks about is that in situations where the threat is not imminent, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but where you can't see the direct impact on your own life of, for example, let's say the virus or the example I just used of war, you are less likely to take action on that item because you can't even fathom it or understand it. So the further away something is removed from you, the less likely you are to be moved by it. I hope that makes sense because I think it's important as to why sometimes I know that I've had a hard time dealing with restrictions and lockdowns and things that are going on because I'm very fortunate that only one person I know has been affected by COVID-19 and it wasn't very serious. So why are you bringing this up, Jenny? If that's what you're asking yourself, because we've been living it with COVID-19 for a year now, and I'm bringing this all up because... Lately, as I mentioned in the intro, I'm seeing more and more people around me stressed and coming to an almost breaking point with this situation. And I think it's really important to recognize that there's a lot of ongoing stress and global upheaval that we've been dealing with energetically for over a year now, which is a super, super long time. I mean, at the beginning, 
if you were an introvert, this was like a blessing for you. And extroverts were dying. But even if you are an introvert, my best friend who is introverted recently told me this pandemic is even starting to wear her down. And like, this isn't surprising. If you're a parent right now, your kids are trying to do virtual school from home while you try to work full time. That's almost impossible, at least on the level of productivity that we're used to. You're not able to meet your friends for a beer or hang out. That's wearing you down because we're designed to be social. And then you have to ask yourself, do we have too much information or too little? Like, how much information do we need? About eight different types of vaccines, four of which are not even available in your country. And they always say, you know, knowledge is power, ignorance is bliss. But it's kind of hard to tell what might serve us best. Like, I personally find myself being like, I wish I didn't know anything. But I also can't stop checking the news because I think I need to be informed. So let me know if that sounds like you at all. And then, especially, some of the media we are consuming through social is not source-checked, largely unregulated. Everybody's talking about whatever they want on there. And I'm going to dive into more on why I've been avoiding social media throughout this time and why I actually deleted Facebook off my phone. But here's the big stress I've been hearing about from everyone recently. Vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. It's everywhere you turn. Media, friends, family, neighbors, social media. Did you get the poke? Did you get the poke? Did you get the poke? Most people are getting the poke. So meanwhile, my phone is bombarding me with news stories about blood clots, deviations from clinical trials, the possibility of cross-administering and mixing vaccines. It's good for you. It's not good for you. Then you compound that with information that's largely scientific that most people don't understand, like the difference between an mRNA vaccine versus an adenovirus-based vaccine. Then you add in messaging, like just take whatever's offered to you when we can. Oh, you're 40 and up? Get AstraZeneca. Oh, wait, now we don't have enough for you to get your booster, so we're going to start cross-administering vaccines. And I'm not commenting on whether this is right or wrong. All I'm trying to illuminate is it's really, really easy to see why you're experiencing more stress than normal and why you might be having more anxiety, more unrest, more frustration, and more fear. And that's okay, because now we're going to start diving into little things that you can control, because all of that shit is outside of your control. But there are things that you can do that are going to help you, and we're going to get into that next. But before then... I want to know how you're feeling. So take a minute right now and think about it while I hit the pause button. So maybe you want to write it down because in a few minutes, we're going to get into those um, useful strategies that I was talking about. But regardless of what you're feeling or what you wrote down right now, I'm willing to bet that there is unrest behind it, and it's manifesting in all of us in very, very different ways, which is why I talked about the variety of feelings before. And when I think about this, I am like brought back almost a year ago to an episode that we recorded with Jeff Shepard from Leading and Being, who's also a certified counselor now. And during that interview, he talked about a lot of things, but the one thing that's always stuck with me throughout the last year and the challenges of the pandemic and I believe it applies to a lot of different facets in our life, is he said, 
folks, it's a global pandemic. Like you don't have to feel like you have to do it all right now. In fact, cut yourself a break. So cut yourself a break. This is super good advice. It's like letting yourself off the hook, you know? In fact, it's great advice that, at least for me, is super difficult to follow. How do I even know I need to take a break? I'm good one day. I'm not good the next. So let's look into it. Here are 12 signs from Healthline.com that you need to take a break. And let me know if this sounds familiar to you. So you're feeling restless. Restlessness can also feel like boredom, antsy. You're going crazy in your own skin. You need to get out of the house. Your sleep is compromised, which means basically you're sleeping less or you're oversleeping. You're eating differently. Personally, me, all I want right now is pizza and pasta. Health food is really not interesting to me at all, which tells me I'm also stressed. You have no motivation. You feel like you have no energy. You're struggling with focus. You feel indifferent about life. You're getting cynical or withdrawn. And then everybody's favorite, you're self-medicating. Are you? Aren't you? Most of us are. And of course you're having more cocktails than normal. But how many more cocktails are we having? Well, according to the Center for Substance Abuse and Addiction, a study found that 25% of Canadians aged 25 to 54 reported an increase in alcohol consumption during isolation. Wondering about cannabis? Well, the CMHA, which is the Canadian Medical Health Association, says 52% of existing cannabis users reported an increase in their consumption during the first wave of the pandemic. Then last but not least on Healthline.com's list is you are not enjoying your favorite things. And I know, folks, this is not a shocker. And nobody is really that concerned with how many extra cocktails they're having right now. And there is a butt ton on your plate, especially right now if you have kids and everybody's at home and nobody's getting out of the house as much as they would like. So you're probably like, Jenny, thanks for reading me the news. I could already read myself. I know how sucky this is. So I'm going to stop telling you how sucky this is because really I'm just trying to empathize with you. So I hope you get that because it's like that for me too. So here's the thing that really sucks, folks is my mom and Jeff are right. And we need to try and cut ourselves a break because this is a challenging time. It is different than anything we've dealt with in our generation before, at least in our part of the world. So what are some actions we can take? How beneficial are they? How hard are they to implement? Let's dive in. And I'm going to break this down for you into two categories. Things that work for me and then what the experts have to say around them. So... Here's what I have done in the past, am still doing, and has continued to work for me throughout periods of stress, not just stressful periods related to the pandemic, although these are super, super useful now as well. Number one, journaling. So I currently practice two different types of journals. The first is a more traditional, long form, notebook, pen, paper, write your thoughts on a page. And this has been a stable coping strategy for me since I was a teenager, um, I mean, it probably dates back to when, you know, you're little and your mom gives you your first diary, but um, it progressed throughout my life. And journaling allows me to get my thoughts out that tend to incessantly swirl around in my brain and it gives them somewhere else to live, which might sound a little bit weird, but writing things out makes me feel like it's easier to come to conclusions on my thoughts, why I'm experiencing certain emotions, especially when I don't know why I'm feeling something. 
Um, it tends to help a lot. It helps me in letting go and understanding myself better. And basically, it just lets me reflect more during difficult times. And I've noticed recently I have this terrible tendency to use words like all the time, always, that lend a lot of absoluteness to my feelings and the experiencing I'm having. And like, let's just kibosh this right now for me and for you if you're like this, because nothing in life is absolute or has no room for change. And using language that is like that is definitely not serving me. Also an insight from my mom. Thanks, mom. So it might sound weird, but basically what happens for me is that writing stuff down helps me break the pattern of thought that's happening in my head and helps me be able to reflect back because it's written down and now a concrete thing to prevent that pattern from happening again. And this might sound weird, but how it feels for me is that turning my thoughts into written words helps me set them free from being stuck in my brain and as thoughts forever. The second form of journaling that I do, and I do it pretty much daily, is the five-minute journal from Intelligent Change, and I love it. So if you're not familiar with it, it's a gratitude journal practice, and it literally takes five minutes. You do it in the morning and at night, and basically in the morning you write down three things you're grateful for, followed by three things that you think will make your day great, and one affirmation about yourself. And then at night, you write down three great things that happened in your day. And then one thing you would have done differently to make your day better. And here's why I love it. So even on super hard days, it forces me to look for the good things that have happened. And it reminds me that while life can be hard, and this is going to sound kind of woo-woo or like kind of hippie maybe for you, but there are always silver linings. The other reason I love it is it kind of serves as like a positive memory history book for me. So I can look back over multiple journals, say like six months, a year, two years ago, and I can remember all of these amazing things that happen. And I'm not alone in this. So professional insight from the University of Rochester Medical Center says that journaling is a helpful tool in managing your mental health. Awesome, because this is a huge conversation right now and ongoing about how important mental health is. So how can journaling help you? Well, journaling can help you manage your anxiety. It can help you reduce your stress. It can help cope with depression. And according to this study, um, journaling also helps you control your symptoms and improve your mood. And it does this by helping you prioritize your problems, your fears and concerns. It lets you track any symptoms day to day so that you can recognize triggers and learn ways to better control them, which is super great for anybody out there who's suffering from anxiety because maybe there's a rhyme or reason or something that's making you more anxious on some days than others. And journaling can help you keep track of this. And it also provides an opportunity for positive self-talk, identifying your negative thoughts and behaviors. This is what I just talked about in terms of my use of, let's call it absolute language, always, never, it's forever like this. Journaling helps me identify this negative pattern that I keep putting myself into. So if you don't journal, I highly recommend that you try. It's been huge for me. And I think it really, really could help. And science says the same. So what else can we do to help ourselves during periods of stress? The next thing that I always tend to default to when I'm in really stressful periods of my life is I walk. 
and I walk a lot. And I swear to God, it helps. Here's why. So similar to writing, walking helps me get unstuck. And here's the best way I can describe it. So walking involves movement and moving your body increases your heart rate. We all know this. It gets your blood moving as well. But it like literally physically unsticks you because you're in motion. So for me, by moving my body, especially in walking because it's a gentle way, it helps me feel that the areas I feel stuck in are also moving. And even more so that they're moving forward because most of us go on walks walking forward. I mean, if you want to walk backwards, you can try, but um, I usually walk forwards. Anyways, that might have been a bit weird. But I find walking helps me create flow and breaks up my thought pattern. So I'm not sure how else to explain it, except to move this way helps me move in thought as well. And according to professionals, what I might actually be experiencing on these walks is something referred to as a meditative state. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I did some research and I found an article on today.com. The link will be in the show notes along with all of the other professional insights and resources I've talked about on the show. But according to this article, walking has benefits for both our physical and mental well-being. So here's the breakdown on this. According to an orthopedic medicine surgeon at Mercy Medical Center in Baltimore, this is a direct quote, walking outside, being in nature and getting out of the same place allows you to decompress and understand what's been going on and refocus, which totally makes sense based on my personal experience. What I'm most curious about, though, is meditative state, because we all hear about meditation. And if you're like me, you think about sitting at home, being quiet, trying not to let your thoughts come in, then your thoughts come in, you feel like you're doing it wrong. But what if walking can be a form of meditation? Sounds good to me. Well, Dr. Saliba, I think I'm saying that right, also states that it helps you to be able to almost meditate when he talks about walking. It helps you to get in touch with your thoughts, to understand what's important, and to relax. Well, this sounds great. So I think it's time to get out there and get walking, folks, if you're not walking already. And a little stress hint and a backtrack here to another previous episode that we did on this show when we did an episode on anxiety. And when we're feeling stressed or we're having anxiety or we're depressed or whatever it is that's going on in your life, or we get really busy, okay? We feel like there isn't time, usually for the most important things. And those are the things that take care of us. So if we go back to that episode on anxiety with Michelle Neal, she told us that exact same thing. That often, the first thing that goes out the window when her life starts to get too busy are the things that she needs most. So let's really check in with ourselves next time we feel like we don't have time for something as simple and essential as getting outside and taking a walk, because I know that I'm definitely, definitely guilty of this, folks. So what else can we do? Well, for me, the number three thing that I practice is getting out into nature. And this is the most impactful way personally for me to decompress and reconnect with myself. Now, I love cities and urban life, mainly for the luxuries and conveniences they provide, but I also often find them anxiety-inducing and disheartening because cities bring to light, at least for me, how highly commercial and capitalist-driven our world is. It's like a more, more, more mentality 
which for me often seems to lack caring, concern, awareness, connection, and it feeds directly into my anxiety and it contributes to a feeling of claustrophobia and being trapped. So let me know if that's you, but that that's what happens for me if I'm in the city and it's too busy for too long. So when I get out into nature, I feel like this almost cures me because the first thing that happens when I get out into nature, and maybe this is just a walk in the forest or Gatineau Park near my house, maybe this is a couple of days of camping, but as soon as I get into nature, the pressure to be productive that is placed on myself by me mainly, but also from the world that we live in, evaporates. When I'm in the woods, when I'm camping, hiking, sitting by a lake, kayaking, swimming, I find this subconscious social pressure I have to answer my phone, to answer my emails, to be productive, it, and be constantly available to people, it evaporates. And this gets even better because in nature, the air feels cleaner, I feel like I can breathe deeper, both literally physically and mentally because of the claustrophobia I experience in cities sometimes. And then I also feel more connected to the bigger picture that life is more than just working and chores and grinding ahead to make money, to buy things and all of that stuff. And I can just be in nature without feeling guilt and pressure. So for me, nature is like the ultimate, ultimate break. So what do the experts say? Well, according to the American Psychology Association, a stroll through a city park to a day spent hiking in the wilderness, exposure to nature has been linked to a host of benefits, including, get ready for it, improved attention, lower stress, better mood, reduced risk of psychiatric disorders, and even upticks in empathy and cooperation. Who wants to pack a bag and get going? Let's go. Just joshing. Let's hear what the rest of the experts have to say. So according to Lisa Nisbet, PhD and psychologist at Trent University in Ontario, Canada, she studies connectedness to nature. And this is a quote here, but you can boost your mood just by walking in nature, even in urban nature. And the sense of connection you have with the natural world seems to contribute to happiness even when you're not physically immersed in nature. So what does that mean? To me, that means as long as you're getting out into nature, even if it's a city park, when you're back sitting at your desk working or you're on your couch watching TV, the happiness benefits that you get from that are still effective, which is pretty, pretty cool. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the cognitive benefits we're getting from our time with the trees, the oceans, and even our city parks. An article from the American Psychology Association this is verbatim here, says that both correlational and experimental research have shown that interacting with nature has cognitive benefits. This is a topic University of Chicago psychologist Mark Berman and his student Catherine Schertz explored in a 2019 review. They reported, for instance, that green spaces near schools promote cognitive development in children and green views near children's homes actually promote self-control behaviors. They also said that adults assigned to public housing units in neighborhoods with more green space showed better attentional functioning than those assigned to units with less access to natural environments. And experiments have found that being exposed to natural environments, are you ready for this? It improves working memory, 
cognitive flexibility, and attentional control, while exposure to urban environments is directly linked to attention deficits. That's insane. No wonder I feel better after going camping for a week or a hike in the woods. This research says that nature is literally restoring my ability to pay better attention and improve my memory. And for all you parents out there, this is more evidence to get your kids away from their screens, even if it's just a few times a week in the city park or a playground or to plan a family camping trip. Because this time is actually improving our kids' cognitive development and ability to control their behavior. Like, I'm sold. So let's go back to what I talked to in the beginning that I promised you I would get into, which is limiting social media and news media in general. And I realize this might be a touchy subject because we're not even cognitively aware of how much time we spend on social media or scrolling on our phones. But let's look at it, and hopefully you guys can be open to this a little bit. So this sounds easy to just do what I did and delete Facebook on your phone. But the reality is, is we are bombarded by information and media at all corners. And the combination of article prompts on our phones, our notification pop-ups, texts from our friends, it all contributes to a feeling of overwhelm. And my feeling is it actually disconnects us from our inner compass. It also has the potential to eat a buttload of our time. So here's how I made the change to limit the amount of social media and news media I was consuming in general. I deleted Facebook off my phone. I didn't delete my Facebook. I just deleted it off my phone. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit. So especially during the pandemic, Facebook has felt extremely overwhelming. It's been igniting me into debates and drawing me into feelings of anger, rage, and arguments. Does this sound good for anybody out there? Because it certainly wasn't good for me. I was struggling with the fact that people were posting articles without fact-checking, publicizing protests without masks, and talking about the pandemic as though they have a background in medicine when the truth was they just didn't, and all of this was super stressful. Compound this with the fighting back and forth in comments, and it was just really upsetting to me to watch how people were edging people on. And the truth is there's not a lot of personal accountability on social media to be authentic, stand up for your voice, and deal with the consequences of it. So I found people were not fully encompassing or taking time to stop and think of the repercussions. And this was totally tanking me energetically and felt counterintuitive to everything morally I feel as a person. So I deleted it off my phone. And this allows me to choose when and how I consume the content there. So I love Facebook for seeing how my loved ones and friends are doing who don't live close by, but the constant rhetoric was flooding me. So now I can choose my sources of media, how and when I want to consume them. And I'm not going to lie to you. At first it was hard, but after removing Facebook from my phone, I actually found my stress levels, especially around COVID-19, immediately decreased. So let's expand on this topic with a little evidence-backed research. And let's start with our kids first. The American Association of Pediatrics and numerous others have warned us about how potentially damaging social media can be for our kids' mental health. Things like cyberbullying and Facebook depression, these are all real things and pretty understandable given how impressionable young people can be. I mean, we didn't have teenager when I was a kid, but I remember how impressionable I could be at that time. 
But is it bad for adults as well? While studies show it can actually be really detrimental for the mental well-being of adults. It's addictive. Now, taken directly from an article in Forbes, a review study from Nottingham and Trent University looked back over earlier research on the psychological characteristics, personality, and social media use. The authors concluded that it may be plausible to speak specifically of Facebook addiction disorder. We can literally be addicted to Facebook. So here's what it says. Addiction criteria such as neglect of personal life, mental preoccupation, escapism, mood-modifying experiences, tolerance, and concealing the addictive behavior appear to be present in some people who use social networks excessively. Well, this is something we're going to have to look into, and you can look for a post on Instagram, what is considered excessive social media use. I suggest starting to see how you feel when you're using social media, and the studies do as well. So it also says that social media triggers more sadness and less well-being, and research actually suggests the more we use social media, the less happy we seem to be, and that social media use is linked to more feelings of isolation. Who needs to feel more isolated right now than we already do? The comparison to others on social media is brutal and inaccurate, and these are my words, but it's important to remember that what we often see on social media is the highlight reel of someone's life and that we're never getting a full picture. This study also shows that social media can trigger feelings of jealousy and it can get us caught in a delusion. A study from Science Direct suggests that part of the unhealthy cycle of social media is that it keeps us coming back to social media, even though it doesn't make us feel very good. This is probably because of what's known as a forecasting error. So like in drug use, we think getting a fix will help, but it actually makes us feel worse, which comes down to an error in our ability to predict our own response. So if you're not going to delete Facebook off your phone or whatever other social media channel is creating more stress than joy for you, the bottom line is use with caution and check in on how you're feeling as you go along. Feeling shittier. Well, there are digital well-being apps on all of our phones, so you could start tracking your usage and see if there's a recurrent pattern there, or maybe it's time to take a walk, journal, or connect to nature. Or, like me, you can just delete social channels from your phone that seem to be causing you more stress than joy, which I'm pretty sure I just said. To round out this episode and start coming to a close, I want to leave you with two resources that have long-standing evidence of helping that I haven't talked about yet. Earlier this year, I discovered a practice called Mindful Self-Compassion when Ryan and I interviewed Dr. Stephen Hickman. If you're interested in listening, it's in episode four of season two, and I highly suggest going back to it. Steve was incredible, and the episode includes a really useful free meditation. In difficult times, since we did this interview, I find myself reflecting on something Steve called common humanity which is knowing I'm not the only one who has likely experienced what's going on for me or who's felt this way before. And then I think about how I can be kinder to myself. How can I change my inner voice and let myself off the hook? What would my best friend or my mom or my partner say to me in this moment? It's a process for me for sure, but it helps considerably to not other myself. And it helps me to treat myself with a little bit more ease. And to make sure you don't have to go hunting around for the episode, there will be a link to it in the show notes. Last but not least, the one thing we should all be doing, and I definitely don't do enough of it myself, is dun, 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 exercise. 
Exercise is proven to increase our serotonin levels and helps us expel energy from our bodies, which, if you feel anxious and stressed, is super important. Even if it's just a walk, folks, just get moving your body. It seriously helps. So let's take a minute and look back on how this started. Mom, you're right. I need to focus on the positive more, as I think we all do. And Jeff, you're right. It's a global pandemic. We need to cut ourselves a break. We need to focus more on the positive, let go of what we can't control, which to me can easily be reframed into letting yourself off the hook. Just do the best with what you can right now. Lean on your friends and maybe try on the techniques listed above. And then let me know if it helped you and what your experience was like. Literally, you can email me at haveallittleinsight at gmail.com. I would love to know what works for you or what you're doing that maybe I didn't talk about here because maybe it'll help someone else. And in closing, just like we do with guests, I'd like to leave you with one little insight. We're never perfect, folks. It's never going to be perfect. And whether that's a situation in your life, whether that's dealing with your kids at home during a global pandemic, whether that's a relationship you're in, the piece of art you're writing or you're working on, perfection is not actually achievable. And I believe it just contributes to higher amounts of stress and it actually prevents taking action at all. So with that being said, things can be good enough. That piece of art that you're working can be shown. That piece of writing that you've been working on can be shared. And sometimes the most important thing is to just publish it. Or if it's a situation sitting home with your kids, with the school and work, it's important to know that this situation is exceptional and you're doing the best with what you have right now. With that, folks, thanks so much for listening. Hopefully some of these strategies are useful for you right now in the future to help you cope with some of the stress in your life. I'm not an expert. I'm just another human like you trying to help out. So if there's another way that I can help you, please email me at havealittleinsight@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I really do want to hear from you and help as much as humanly possible. So send me that email, DM me on Instagram. We are at Hallie Podcast. If you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend, your mom, a coworker. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a comment. We are available anywhere and everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Have a Little Insight, folks. I am your host, Jenny, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care, stay safe, and have a good one.